Are traditional expert calls in the investment world becoming obsolete? According to Stream, they are. And you can access primary research easily and efficiently through their platform. With Stream, you'll have the right insights at your fingertips to make the best investment decisions. They offer a vast library of over 26,000 expert transcripts powered by AI search technology. Plus, they provide competitive rates on expert call services, and you can even have an experienced buy-side analyst conduct the calls for you. But that's not all. Stream also provides the ability to engage with experts one-on-one and get your calls transcribed free of charge, all for 40% less than you would pay for 20 calls in a traditional expert network model. So if you're looking to optimize your research process and increase ROI on investment research spend, Stream has the solution for you. Head over to their website at streamrg.com to learn more. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time. All right. Hello, and welcome to the Another Value Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Walker. If you like this podcast, we mean a lot if you could rate, subscribe, review it wherever you're watching or listening to it. With me today, I'm happy to have on from Value Sits for the second time, my friend Connor. Connor, how's it going? Good, Andrew. How are you? I'm doing great, man. I'm really excited to have you on. I've been, I'm an av- as you know, I'm an avid fan of yours. I'm a day one subscriber. I've been meaning to have you back on. And then you put out the idea we're going to talk about today, which I instantly hit you up and said, hey, I, I think this is perfect. Uh, but we'll get there in a second. Let me just start. Quick disclaimer, remind everyone, nothing on this podcast is investing advice. Please do your own research, consult a financial advisor, all of that jazz. That always holds, but maybe particularly true today because my audience is largely domestic and we're going to be talking about a international London listed stock. So kind of that all out the way, let's turn to the company we're going to talk about. The company is Marlowe. The ticker over in London is MRL. And I'll just talk it over, toss it over to you. What is Marlowe and what's so interesting about them? Uh, yeah, thanks, Andrew, and uh, thanks for having me on the podcast again. So, yeah, Marlowe is an interesting uh, situation. I think it's it's a small cap. It's about a five hundred eighty million pound sterling market cap, so about seven hundred twenty million US dollars. Um, listed on the AIM exchange in London, which is the small cap exchange. And I suppose uh, essentially what the business does it's it's um it's a it's a roll up or serial acquirer business, um, and it's it has an interesting ownership profile in that it was uh, basically set up by. The CEO, Alex Daker, um, who is a kind of a, a protege of uh, an, a, the, the main shareholder, is a guy called uh, Lord Michael Ashcroft, who's a former Conservative Party treasurer in the UK. So he's, uh, you know, he's a, an interesting uh, character. Uh, if I but he's a guy. He's, Lord, he, he, sorry, Lord Ashcroft, the former Conservative Party treasury member. I mean, that sounds like a, a, a like low grade novel invented villain, does it? Just like Lord <laughs> Ashcroft, the former treasurer. I, I always laugh when I hear that. I don't know. I didn't know much about him till then, but that's just his name would always float around. And I would always think that. Yeah. So, I mean, I suppose he is an interesting character in terms of, uh, I suppose, the best way of, I'd describe it, uh, you know, is he has a habit of making money in that he he has backed a number of listed companies. Um, probably one of his best known wins in business was that he um, he sold the ADT security business uh, to Tyco International, um, I think, for over five billion um, some some time ago. So. His focus has been on kind of business support services, um, and certainly Marlow really fits that that bill in terms of it's. I mean, what is Marlow? It's essentially two businesses today, um, based in in two kind of complementary sectors. So the first, you know, the first segment is really the the testing. It's in the te- testing, inspection, and certification business. So that's basically around you know fire safety and security. Um, you know, water and air filtration and testing and that. So really kind of a, a business, business to business services business focused on uh, premises and buildings. Um, and, you know, it serves a lot of, you know, government departments in the UK, 
the National Health Service, um, the Boots retail chain, so Walgreens Boots, part of that that business in the UK, uh, you know, and really across a whole range of sectors. Um, so that's one side of the business. That's about sixty percent of revenues, and approximately the same in terms of the run rate EBITDA. Then the other side of the business is in the GRC or uh, governance, risk, and compliance, um, and that's really kind of focused around kind of the people within businesses rather than than the premises. So that's um, that's about forty balancing about forty percent of revenue and, and earnings. Um, and so what that really kind of is focused on kind of a, a number of kind of key subsectors. So um, occupational uh, occupational health, HR compliance, um, you know. Uh, data management that you know those kinds of um you know kind of middle and and, and back office kind of f- functions in in businesses um and so i suppose initially marlow started out focused on the tic or the testing inspection certification and in in more recent years um it it's you know kind of built up the grc side of the business and focus maybe more on that so um that's i suppose at, at a very high level that that's that's what the business does um i mean why is it interesting i suppose after, I mean, this this business was originally set up. It was initially a cash shell, or like similar to, I suppose, what you call a SPAC in, in the US. Um, you know, and, and Lord Ashcroft kind of backed it initially, and then um, hired the CEO Alex Dacre at the age of twenty seven to lead this business. And this is really Dacre's project, I suppose, in terms of he from his previous roles in uh, previous Ashcroft backed businesses, he. Um, he, he spotted an opportunity to, you know, for a, a roll up kind of private equity type model, um, but focused on instead of, you know, kind of traditional kind of, um, uh, you know, kind of, you know, maintenance and, and service type maintenance service type businesses, maybe focus more on, on um, you know, business, um, I suppose, how would you describe it? Uh, kind of more professional services type related, uh, you know, uh, business lines. So, um so yeah, so I mean, from from a cash shell in 2015 to today, um, you know, f- as I said, 580 million market cap. It was briefly, I think, over a billion before. Uh, you know, the share price has, has declined uh, by, by about 30 percent in the last 12 months, and um, you know that that decline is, is is kind of unusual in that there's been no real negative news around the business. Um, so I mean, when you think about it, I mean, they've hit their targets in terms of you know their their kind of target was to hit 500 million in run rate revenues. And 100 million in run rate EBITDA by I think by 2024, and they did that. They've done that this year effectively. Um, so they're on target, uh, produce very strong results. Uh, you know, good organic growth, underlying organic growth uh, of you know about eight to ten percent across the business in terms of revenues, and then obviously the headline growth because of it. The you know the, the roll up model is much higher. It's in the kind of I think it's grown at a 38 percent revenue CAGR over the last five years. So. Um, so you know they're they're doing what they said they would do, um, and yet the market, uh, the public markets at least, um, uh, you know, it's, it seems to have fallen out of favour. And maybe partly uh, part of that is maybe attributable to just UK equities are out of favour generally; they're unpopular. Um, this is also it's a small cap, um, so you know it's less liquid. Um, there is, I suppose, on the one hand, there is high inside ownership, which is attractive in terms of between Alex Dacre, the CEO, and, and Ashcroft. They own about eighteen percent of the company, um, but on the other hand, maybe maybe there's a um, there's a kind of a, a question or perception of you know full shareholder alignment um, potentially. I mean, I, I don't really see that because, as I said, you know, um, Ashcroft has has 
a habit or a track record in making money. So I think, you know, um, based on previous experience, that, you know, an exit or, a, a, um, you know, a liquidity event of some kind is, is kind of how he would, he and uh, the CEO will, will, will make, make their money and kind of monetize what they've built. Um, so, I mean, it is an interesting backstory, uh, backdrop to that, uh, to, to the business. And I suppose, why is it interesting to me? I think for two reasons. Firstly, it's just fundamentally, it's cheap at the moment. It's, as I said, it's down 30%. It's trading about nine times uh, LTM EBITDA, but that's really about seven and a half times run rate EBITDA when you factor in the full full year effect of recent acquisitions. Um, so, it, you know, that, and that compares to kind of, you know, 16 times LTM EBITDA for listed peers in, in, in the UK and in Europe. Uh, and that compares to kind of an average of about 20 times EBITDA uh, for that's Marlowe's own historic multiple over the last five years. Um, and then similarly, then when you look at the private market uh, multiples for, you know, comparable uh, assets, um, th- that multiple, those multiples are in the range of, you know, 15 to 33 times EBITDA. So um, at seven and a half times kind of the run rate EBITDA, this is just very cheap. And which, you know, which seems odd just given that there's no, negative news there's no profit warnings uh so that 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 jumped out at me but then what really interests me in this is is recently there's been media reports around uh management uh, exploring the sale of the TIC business which is as i said earlier 60% of the revenues um so when you when you think about that and what would that would be worth i mean that's probably worth north of 600 million pounds sterling uh, and that's even allowing for some cash leakage in terms of costs and, and taxes and so on. So, uh, you know, 600 million uh, for, you know, a little over half the business is more than the entire market cap of the whole business today. So, you know, you, if, if they, you know, and the TIC business is the older part of the business, which they've been in since, you know, 2015 when they made their first acquisition. So, um, you know, it would make sense that maybe they would look to monetize that, certainly if the public markets aren't really reward, rewarding it in terms of what they've built to date. So, um, you know, uh, you're effectively, you know, you, they, they sell that business and you're effectively getting the GRC or the, the governance, compliance and risk um, business for free, essentially. Yeah. And and that's a much higher margin business. Just So just to kind of to, to, to touch on that, I mean, the, the, the GRC segment, I mean, that's um, that that's growing well good kind of you know eight nine percent organic growth uh but 25 to 30 percent ebitda margins compared to about 13 14 15 percent maybe ebitda margins on the tic segment so it's it, it's growing nicely but it's much higher margins and that's because there's a SaaS software component to it um and you know about approximately a quarter of the revenues at the moment are SaaS related um, and that's going to grow over time so um i mean for me, this is really, it's fundamentally cheap, but it's also a breakup event type situation as well, where, you know, this company could be sitting on its own market cap in cash in 12 months time or within the next 12 months. Um, and then, you know, that also has the, the interesting follow on implication that, you know, you leave behind the, the GRC business, that's 200 million in run rate revenues. That's probably too small to be publicly listed re- mm-hmm. realistically. Uh, and so then you look at, again, look at private market comps, you know, at 15 to 30 times or 33 times uh, EBITDA multiples. Um, and there's been a lot of consolidation in that space. Um, you know, I could easily see them selling selling out of that business uh, as well at a nice multiple in time. So, um, 
you know, that there's kind of a couple of levers here for for um for the value to be realized. So I mean, you know, essentially uh the business is trading at a big discount, not just to peers, but to to to, to its private market value. Um so I think uh in all likelihood, um I would expect there to be some some kind of uh, event in, in within the next 12 months and interestingly they put out a trading update recently which was very very brief and didn't mention the TIC segment at all it only mentioned the GRC business um so I thought that was interesting you compare that to the trading update around this time last year and it was um you know m much more detailed um this was literally a couple of paragraphs um so I just thought that was interesting uh, in terms of um the relative silence in that update compared to what you would normally maybe expect. And now a quick word from our sponsor. Are traditional expert calls in the investment world becoming obsolete? According to Stream, they are. And you can access primary research easily and efficiently through their platform. With Stream, you'll have the right insights at your fingertips to make the best investment decisions. They offer a vast library of over 26,000 expert transcripts powered by AI search technology. Plus, they provide competitive rates on expert call services, and you can even have an experienced buy-side analyst conduct the calls for you. But that's not all. Stream also provides the ability to engage with experts one-on-one -on -one and get your calls transcribed free of charge, all for 40% less than you would pay for 20 calls in a traditional expert network model. So if you're looking to optimize your research process and increase ROI on investment research spend, Stream has the solution for you. Head over to their website at streamrg.com to learn more. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time. Well, first, that was uh, an incredible, you went through just about every question I had on here. So you, you've kind of put me to shame as the host, but I, I think there's some places that I can go there. So let me start with, uh, hmm, where should, let's start with the tick sale. So you mentioned, hey, June, mid June 2023. So this year, there's an article in Sky News, which is obviously a very reputable source that says, "Hey, you know, Marlowe, backed by Lord Ashcroft. It, you mentioned he's got a habit of making money. Which my my joke is when you said it, there there are worse habits to have, right? I'm always trying to kick my sugar habit. I think I'd rather have the the making money habit than the sugar habit. But uh, it says Sky News, Lord Ashcroft, Marlowe." They're looking to sell their biggest division for about 650 million pounds. As you said, that's more than the market cap, and that would cover just about all the all the debt. So you would be getting the remaining business, which is clearly valuable for free if it, they kind of hit 650. Uh, the The interesting line here is it says, "Hey, uh, exploratory talks have gotten underway in recent weeks. They're looking for 16 times profit." And then there's a line that says, "Insiders caution that a sale would only take place if bidders meet management expectations." Right. So. Yeah. To me, like you see that line and that's a warning. Hey, we are price sensitive. We are price disciplined. We know what we think we have here, right? We're not a, a desperate seller. But the counter to that would be, hey, you and I are talking in mid-September and there's been no update on the, there's been no update on the sale process. So look, it doesn't, if they sell or not, doesn't change if the value's there, but obviously the catalyst isn't quite there if they're not going to sell. So do you think a sale is kind of is kind of still in the cards here. Look, it's been three months. They said we're going to be disciplined on pricing. Doesn't change if the value's there, but it, there is an interesting question. Hey, if if we haven't seen a sale now, doesn't mean a sale's not out there. And maybe management thinks this is 16 times, but if you run a process and everyone says, hey, that's a 10 to 12 times business and you say 16, I'm not going to sell. Maybe the value was really 10 to 12. So are you at all concerned that the sale process is kind of long in the tooth here? And not that that breaks the thesis, but it certainly changes the thesis if they're not going to sell or if nobody was willing to kind of bite on 16x. Yeah, no, I mean, I think no, I, I, that, that's fair in terms of, I mean, the, the 
Certainly, I mean, the, it's a bit like, you know, when a company announces a strategic review, you know, the, I mean, the, this, the, the company themselves haven't announced anything here, but the, you know, the, the market intelligence indicates that they are, they have an advisor who is engaged to try and sell this business uh, and they are open to selling it. So it, it's not a live, you know, like a live merger arb situation, but, um, you know, I think, and I, and I have kind of, I have looked at situations before where, you know, a, a deal was announced discussions were were ongoing and then the deal was pulled because financing wasn't available or wasn't available on the right terms and so on. So yeah, of course that that's a risk here. Um, but I think I, I think the incentives are there uh, in terms of the duration of their investment, uh, in terms of having built up this business. They have a private equity type mindset. Um, I think the compensation structure in terms of the CEO and the nature of his compensation is way below market. He only really makes money if there's a liquidity event or a sale and, you know, there's change of control provisions around, you know, some of his share options and so on that would, would, would crystallize. So I think um, they're certainly incentivized to sell. So then the, obviously the thing is, but will the markets allow them to sell at the price, which is, the, I think, is the point you're making. So um, this, I, I think, you know, certainly it's possible that a sale might get done. You know, they might get bids of 10x or 12x and they're holding out for 15. If that is the case, this business is valued at seven and a half times and its public peers today are trading well north of that. So, you know, on absolute terms, um, you know, it, on relative terms, sorry, and in absolute terms, it, it, it is it is cheap. Uh, and so there's still, you know, there's still value there and they'll continue on with their roll up model. Um, and, you know, it, it'll become a bigger a bigger platform company. Um, one would think so. Um so I think, yeah, no, I mean, to your question, I mean, is the catalyst at risk of of, of breaking? Yeah, possibly. Yeah. But I think, you know, you've got the secondary, uh, I suppose, support of of the value of the yeah. undervaluation there. Let me just quickly on the, you know, TIC, one of the things is it's one of those quirky businesses where you see it and you look at the unit economics like. This is government regulated that you have to have this. This is, uh, you know, it's compliance and safety driven for the most part. Those are the type of things that are growing in the modern world, right? Compliance costs are going up, regulate, like not only growing, but they're mandatory. You have to do them. And you see this in their results, right? They, I was reading their Q4 call, their Q4 call, and I didn't get quite all the way through it, but most of their 2023 capital markets day. And the thing they keep stressing is, look, if you look at us on net revenue retention, we're over a hundred percent, right? Like people don't exit these services. In fact, one of the great reasons for a roll-up is it, people actually kind of increase and we can upsell them, upsell them and all that sort of stuff, right? So yeah. uh, that's a great business. I don't know where I was going at that point. Let me, let me, I'll put that aside if I can remember it. Oh, here's where I was going. Is there really active, like, because they're so quirky, it's not like in the US where I can say, hey, this is a really hot space. The last four public companies here have gotten taken out. Here's what it looks like. It's kind of quirkier. The Most of the public, most of the takeouts are like smaller bolt-ons. Is there a really active space? Like, who do you think the bidders are for this? Is it just a private equity firm levering it up? And we'll talk leverage in a second. Is there a strategic bidder that would make sense? How do you think about that? Yeah, the, the, there is a mix. So on the TIC, so I, mean, I mean, when I look at this business, and as you know, my, my background is in private equity. Uh, and, you know, when I look at this business, this seems, uh, you know, it, it's an ideal candidate for a mid-market private equity yep. takeout. And I mean, so there's a couple of features to the business that that, that make me, lead me to that that kind of conclusion. Uh, I suppose you mentioned there the kind of the, the retention rate. So, you know, on a headline basis, 85% recurring revenues, 
across the business. Um, you know, the uh, it's re it's not it's not over leveraged. You know, they maintain two times the target leverage is around two times the uh, net debt EBITDA, and they've consistently maintained that over a long period of time. So it's not massively over leveraged. Um, it on an underlying basis, and we can get into this now. It does generate cash flow. The perception is that it doesn't, which is one of the, the main bear arguments, and we can we can get into that after. But when you look at the, the profile of the business, it's it's resilient. It's kind of re recession resilient, certainly in terms of you know it provides business critical or essential services, um, uh, and that's shown in the in the recurring revenue nature, the contracted revenue uh, profile in terms of you know this multi year contracts with a lot of its customers governments large corporates small small companies you know across the whole landscape of of of, of customer types um and, you know the, the real i suppose the real interesting thing about this as well is that regulation and compliance as you indicated is getting more and more onerous um and so you know it's not like a lot of these companies can opt out you know if you if you run if you run a, a property business or a development business or or your landlord of any description, you know, fire your you know your fire exits, all that kind of stuff has to be certified. That's that you know, there's no way out of that, and that that's kind of true. I mean, that's just one example, but that's kind of true across you know air ventilation, um, you know, water filtration, all that kind of stuff. That all this stuff has to be tested by law. Yeah, it, it's 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 legally or you know uh, mandated by regulation. So. You know, those bit those revenue lines are, are revenue streams are not going to dry up, and so in that sense, it's a very bankable, um, or credit worthy type of business for a private equity acquirer, um, and also then I suppose you know the runway to growth, um, you know it it's it, it's a it's a buy and build or um, a serial acquisition, so it can it has plenty of room to to bolt on further acquisitions, I mean, um. Yeah, you know, and then the other thing I suppose as well is that you know overall, and so across the overall business, not just the TIC segment, but you know, management estimate they occupy about five percent of the total addressable UK market across the the six particular subsectors that they're focused on. So, you know, um, you know, the average the average ticket size on their on their acquisitions over the last eight years is about eight million pounds sterling. So, I mean, some of these, I mean, they bought some businesses for one hundred and thirty million, and they bought others for you know less than 10 million so um but the average ticket size is about 8 million uh, so there's a lot of very easy um bolt on uh opportunities for this and you know then it's just a multiple arbitrage play where you're buying small small bolt-ons for you know four five six x and then you know you look at kind of on, in the public markets businesses like this and marlow itself historically has been valued at north of 15x so you know um, that that is always a tough one for me because i do like i do hear it but it's just tough because there is value we'll probably talk about this more in the risk section there there is no doubt there's value created like what they said i, I i'm doing this roughly for math but they said hey you know in 2022 the average acquisition we did was seven times ebitda pre-synergies and then after synergies and integration and stuff, it was five and a half times EBITDA or something, right? So there's no doubt you're creating value by taking out, if you do the math there, you take out kind of 20%-ish of the cost base and just synergies. There's no doubt you're creating value there, but I always hate it. Like maybe I'm just being too much of a stickler, but I always hate it when you say, oh, you know, this company trades 12 times on the public markets and they're buying private market peers at six times. And, you know, the moment they do that, the thing they just bought for six is worth 12. So they've created, like, it's just tough because 
part of the reason it trades at 16 times is they think you, you can go out and create like that synergy value. I, I don't know. It, it's just, it's tough. I, I always get confused it's, by the it's not so much. That. I think it's, it's not so much that what they just bought, you know, the small boton goes from being worth five to 15 X. It's, 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 it's the overall platform that, that is Marlowe itself is, is what is worth more than, you know, uh, a, a low single digit multiple i think that's and that's the it's the scale yeah, and I, I as you said that the, 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 the opportunity for synergies further growth um and you know what they can do with a small boat on relative to that small boat on acquisition continuing on a standalone yeah. basis is just that that's that's the value um yeah, that, that's, that, that, that's what drives the, or that's what should warrant over time a higher multiple and this does come back to, they talk about, hey, we buy things and not only do we take the costs out, but you know their organic growth accelerates once they come on us because either we cross sell their regulatory compliance products to our customer base or we go into their customer base and start cross selling them onto our stuff. So yeah, here, uh, let me, one more thing. And then I want to turn to the bear thesis because there is a, a loud and kind of passionate, I would say, bear thesis, as you saw when I tweeted this out or I've seen it in other places. But one last thing, we mentioned management incentives, right? And I, I love businesses. It, it, I've dealt with so many businesses where management teams don't own any stock. The board doesn't own any stock. And I don't even know, like, I used to think incompetent or that they were shady. And sometimes that happens. But a lot of times what happens is, hey, I'm making $200,000 per year as a board member at this company. I own $4,000 worth of stock. If there's option A, which sells the company and gets shareholders a you know nice premium, or option B, which maybe doesn't create tons of value, but I keep, cre I keep creating, I keep collecting that $200,000. I can always convince myself that option A will be there in a year, right? And option B is better for me. So, uh, but management incentives. Nice thing here is Lord Ashcroft owns a nice chunk. There's this really interesting management incentive plan in place uh, based on TSR, which I think is actually kind of controversial. It would be, people lap it up in the US, but in the UK, I think it might be a little controversial. So do you want to speak to management ownership, the incentive plan and all of that? Yeah, well, I think, um, I mean, I think, again, coming back to the, the management, uh, so the incentive relative to the, the catalyst here and, and selling the business, I mean, that 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 to me, um, it's rare that you see a CEO, um, you know, happy to have a salary that's 50% roughly below his peer's salary. You know, he, he is, you know, and when you look at, when you look at the value that they've created, I mean, that's even more striking. I mean, I think I, I wrote this up in my newsletter and I put a chart in where, I kind of showed um, the, the the performance of Marlowe since uh, Alex Staker became the CEO and plotted that share price performance against, um, you know, a lot of other serious, some well-known serial acquirers, Halma, PLC, DCC, uh, uh, and a few other, uh, you know, well-known names. And Marlowe has outperformed all of them. Uh, you know, I think a cumulative return of something like 300%, which is more than, uh, than Halma, for example, has returned uh, over that same time period so you know he has created value he is an argument you know to say i should be paid you know uh top rate or top you know uh, market rate salary and he's not so there's a reason he's not um and it's because uh he sees his return not through you know um very generous you know uh incentive plans or paying himself massive uh salary but but through creating value and then creating an event or a liquidity event and that's why you know he has i mean he has a number of uh sh different share options incentives which you know crystallize on a change of control some of them not all of them but a good chunk of them do 
So, um, you know, he's I think, got I think those, and then he's also part of him in the whole senior management team. If I'm remembering this correctly, they've got a, they get 10% of total shareholder return over a 10% hurdle by April, 2026. So that yeah. means the stock price, you know, as we speak, you and I are speaking, the stock is at like six, six pence. Is it six pence? Six hundred six pence. Yeah. Six six pence, yeah. Okay. It has to hit uh, 11.1 in order yeah. for him to get that return. And if he does, it is a massive, massive return. But, you know, again, that's that's a CEO kind of betting on himself. If shareholders win, I'm going to win huge. If shareholders break even or lose, I, I was way, way underpaid and, you know, maybe deservedly show so because yeah. shareholders broke even off. But I, I just love that setup because he can only get paid if shareholders get paid and it creates yeah. a, a mini hard catalyst, right? Like, look, if we're in a great depression in 2025, 2026, he's not going to be able to sell this for 11 pounds or whatever. But if, if we're not, he's going to do everything he can to get the share price there. And if the stock's undervalued, that's buyback shares. If the stock, if there's a, a creative sale to be done, there it's a creative selling. So it, I, I'm sure he's got that, you know, April 2026 date circled in his calendar of, hey, like if we don't get the sale done now, let's circle back up in 2025 and get that sale done. So yeah, I, I don't know. Anything else you want to say on management incentive? Yeah, and I think just the, the, the price, the 11, about 11 pounds a share kind of uh, benchmark there, the or, um, price that you mentioned. I mean, that that's kind of in and around where you know kind of the, maybe that what i'd call or consider the fundamental value of this business to be i mean i think you know I, I my my own numbers you know the breakup value of the business if you just look at private market comps and apply that to, to this business um you know it's it's you know north of 12 pounds a share um and then similarly you know if you could take a slightly more conservative uh view and kind of you know assume they sell tic and then the remaining grc business stays public and re-rates to 10x from yeah, on, on run rate earnings from where, where it is today, you know, it, it's it's just short of about £10 a share on that basis on my, my numbers. So I think, you know, 10 to £12 a share is kind of where I think the fundamental value of this business is based on, um, you know, looking at it a number of ways. So uh, so I think, yeah, uh, you know, I think there's, there's, there's um, you know, I think management have that same view as well in terms just, of where the value is. And just to hop on there, uh, and... I'll include a link to the write-up in the show notes so people can go click, subscribe if they want to see the, the whole thing. But, you know, again, the, the stock is at six six pounds. You come at it in a lot of different ways, but basically every way you come at it kind of centers around the 10 to 12 pound fair value. That's also, you know, 11 pounds by April, 2026 is where this management team gets paid. So if you kind of think about that, A, they're kind of showing you where they think fair value can get to. And B, April, 2026 is two and a half years from now. So there's another two and a half years of compounding to kind of get the stock and the fair value over and above that if you don't sell today or something. So very interesting setup. Let's go to the bear case. Again, I, I saw your write-up. I, I, I had one other friend who's a very sharp friend who I, I asked some questions about on the pod who's involved. Actually, he received it up. I told him you were coming on. And he was like, oh, I'm actually flying to London tomorrow tomorrow to talk to Marlowe. So uh, he, he was going there. But there's a very active and, and vocal bear case here. And I, I, there's actually like probably seven different parts or seven different theories to the bear case. But the main one would be Look at this company. You have a roll-up with huge adjusted earnings, right? Huge adjustments on the earnings because their their adjustments are for we're buying something, we're integrating it. Obviously, we're firing people, doing changes, and everything. Uh, those are one-time costs allegedly, but it, the bear case says, look at the huge adjustments. Huge adjustments, and they just always keep coming. That's part one, and part two is, but in part because of those huge adjustments, but also because of working capital and stuff, this roll-up has never really generated any cash flow. And when you take huge adjusted earnings. Plus, plus no cash flow in a roll-up story, 
That is how every rollup that I've ever seen blow up blows up, right? And when rollups are good, you kind of get the Danaher long-term compounders, just mm -hmm. in incredible returns. Everybody worships at their feet. When rollups are bad, you get the Valiant, right? Which blows up spectacularly. Yeah. And everybody says, hey, look how aggressive the accounting was. How could anyone have been invested in that thing? So I think the bear case points to, and I believe some of the directors here were involved in roll-ups in some way, shape, or form that had a similar issue, right? Where working capital was always getting adjusted, it never generated cash flow, and the business blew up. So how would you, how did you address or get comfortable with those bear theses? Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, the, 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 the pretty much the, the whole, the, the whole bear case on this stock is that, you know, uh, you either, you have to believe management's adjusted numbers, uh, to, to, to get comfortable or to believe in the story, uh, because otherwise, when you look at EBITDA down to free cash flow, it doesn't really generate any cash. And I suppose the way I'd look at it, I mean, you have to look at where the business is currently. So looking at, take the, the FY23 numbers, where it's, you know, it's it's hitting kind of 100 million or 95 to 100 million in run rate EBITDA. Uh, and that's translated to, I think it's about, sorry, 83 million, uh, not on a run rate, but on the on the reported adjusted EBITDA number and that that flows through to about six million of free cash flow to equity so okay people look at that and say there's no this business isn't generating any cash and so you know what what's happening there I mean this is actually a very working capital light business so there isn't I mean there's no quirky accounting around working capital really uh the capex pretty light about 16 million on 84 84 million of, of EBITDA you've got lease payments taxes interests and then you've got about 25 million of acquisition and restructuring costs. So really, a lot of the leakage is coming through the costs of operating a roll-up business model. Uh, and so, I mean, that I suppose that's what people, I suppose, should remember as well. I mean, you look at you go back and look at Halma and look at their accounts over the years, and the EBITDA to free cash flow to equity conversion is pretty low at times as well. When you look at how uh, how they've they've built, and that's so. I mean. Halma has a great track record. It's a great business. Um, Marlowe is much smaller. Uh, it's much earlier in its, it's, it's only about eight years old. Uh, you know, and, and so it's, it, it's still in that earlier stage. Uh, but, you know, how I got comfortable with this, when you look at, if you're looking at this business, if they stopped the roll-up model today, say they've hit, they've hit 500 million in revenues, that's a, that's a very, you know, uh, a very strong level in, in eight years to hit that kind of uh, revenue. 100 million run rate EBITDA, if they just stopped and ran the business for cash, um, you know, the the, the 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 cash flow, underlying cash flow profile starts to look very different. You know, the when you look over the 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 the, the way they incur restructuring costs, I mean, what are they for? That's really for integration, software integration, uh, you know, migration of of you know, uh, you know software and assist IT systems onto their platform when they buy a business and you know they're buying lots of small little businesses and bolting them on so you know there's there's there, 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 there is some cost involved in doing that until they get everything transferred over there's a lot of duplication of roles and staff and obviously there's redundancy programs then to to, to kind of rationalize workforce numbers so you know when you look at the numbers they you know those restructuring costs typically last you know 12 to 18 months maybe you know by that they're they're fully they fall away after after two years at most really so um you know you think about if they ran this business for cash you know that 84 million in ebitda um actually you know, or, you know that that 84 million ebitda that 
break, you know, initially looks like six million free cash flow. You know, you 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 add back those restructuring costs to look at it on a stabilized basis, assume no growth, and you've got thirty million of free cash flow. Um, now that that's a kind of a six percent free cash flow equity yield, but then now then you look at on a run rate basis today, where it's at kind of a hundred million when you factor in the bolt-ons that they completed over the course of last year. So you got a hundred million EBITDA. The capex is still the same. It's not you know it's not like they they invest a massive amount in maintenance capex. Um, similarly, working capital light. So you've just got interest and lease payments, which are not not huge. Lease payments are eleven million a year. So you know, on, on my numbers, you know, the hundred million converts to on a stabilized basis um, to about forty three million uh, of free cash flow to equity, and that that that's more like an eight uh, percent free cash flow to equity yield. And then you look at the businesses growing organically at eight to ten percent, um, you know, and it's hitting. On a run rate basis, it's hit, it's hitting, you know, 19, 20% EBITDA margins. Um, you know, and so on 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 a 43 million of free cash flow on a on a hundred million EBITDA, that's 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 you know 43% uh conversion. So then I look to compare that to someone like Halma. Halma last year, their free cash conversion, when you factor in that they capitalize development costs, they have pension costs that they have to have to pay. Um, they've similarly lease payments and so on. Talma's conversion was about forty-one percent, I think, or forty-two percent. So they're they're not they're not way off um, other more established, you know, platform companies. So um, when you look at it on that basis, I think it it, it it's not as bearish or as negative as people think, uh, or as it's perceived to be. If I can just yes, Andrew. So I, I don't have a position here, though. I I, I might in the near future, but. If I can just suggest one thing you can go look is look depths of COVID. They pretty much stop acquisitions for a while. They shut the machine machine down because COVID, you know. And if you go look at their EBITDA, then yes, there are still addbacks, but the cash flow is much stronger and yeah. the addbacks are much lower because you know that's what you would expect. We stopped the acquisition machine, so we don't have these integration expenses. If they're truly one time, it should come down. And guess what? They come down. So I would just suggest Andrew there, and you were alluding to it, but the back half of the fiscal year 2023, which they just reported their fiscal year ends in March. So March, yeah. it's already done. But the back half, they generated huge amounts of cash flow. And again, that's because they did some big acquisitions in calendar year, uh, late 2021, early 2022, had the integration expenses. But then by the back half of the calendar year 2022, early 2023, those had kind of rolled off. They didn't do similar sizes. So you start to see the cash flow really starts pouring. So again, I don't think it's my personal opinion. I don't think it's a hundred percent settled, but when you combine the 2020 numbers with the back half of fiscal year 2023, I think you've got a good you've got really good signs that hey, they are not lying to you. Like th this will be a great cash flow generative business. You know, the other thing, and I'll just let you comment yeah, on this. Just, just, sorry, just on just to finish off on that point on the cash. I think a lot of people will look at this. Let's see, you know, mention of adjusted numbers. They look at the cash flow, uh, you know, on a headline basis and say, okay, I can't see where how this is translating earnings to cash flow and it goes into the you know the too hard pile and they're just you know they're they're they don't want to do a too funny, much digging a funny thing my friend said is he said look this is a uk listed company and if you look their leverage like sits right around two and every time it ticks up a little bit above two for any reason shareholders freak out and there's these big adjusted numbers and uk investors just like won't give them any credit and my friend was laughing because he's like look if this if this was a us listed business their shareholders would be ready to set the company on fire because they'd be like, you have a steady cash flow generative bolt on roll up business. Like this needs to be Forex levered tomorrow. 
what are you doing? Start paying, start paying a dividend or start buying back shares or get way more aggressive rolling up because you are not levered enough. And, you know, he thinks the ad backs would be looked on much more favorably in the US, which honestly, I think he's probably right on both counts. But it, it's just funny, yeah. you know, like kind of geography is destiny. UK investors more conservative, don't like the ad backs, don't like the leverage. And because of that, Marlowe's kind of running around those targets, which again, might be an argument. Hey, maybe this should be private. I, I personally think this should probably be three and a half times levered and uh, they should definitely keep doing the acquisitions and maybe it'd be a better target in a, uh, maybe be better target as a private equity owned company. Yeah. I mean, when you look at, you look at the emergence of private credit now as well, uh, you know, I think this, again, I mentioned earlier, I think this is, this falls into that, I think, sweet spot for a middle market private, you know, private equity with a, a private credit um, lender providing the debt. And, you know, um, I think it works. I think it works. You know, it would work well in that in that type. Of, again, especially given the resilience of uh, the recurring nature of the revenues and cash flows. Let me lob up kind of a softball to you. You know, I would just encourage anybody who's interested in the thing to go look at the uh, 2023 investor debt. I think it's kind of like if you were interested in compounders, roll up stories, it, it's a little bit like value investor porn, where they've got the you know they've got the great slide, one of those famous capital allocation slide. Like here's our free, free cash flow. Is leverage too high? Yes, cash flow goes to paying down leverage. Is leverage too low? Is leverage too high? No, cash flow goes to uh, organic gross above our ROIC or M&A. If we can't find any of those, any excess goes to share buybacks or dividends. Like, it, and then it's got all other stuff on how good the acquisitions are. Like, it, it really is like, if you publish it here, there would be like 25 Twitter accounts dedicated to just talking about how great it is. So it, it's kind of softball, but I do want to ask like capital allocation, all right, the the return, the merger story is great. It provided you believe it, which I think you do. I, I kind of do. We haven't seen the share repurchases yet. We haven't really seen the dividends yet. Like, how, how are you thinking about free cash flow in the story going forward? Because leverage is it at that magical two x number. They, it, especially with growth, they don't need to pay down debt anymore. No, they don't. I mean, leverage the the, the debt is is very manageable, um, and so it's they could. And yeah, I think you're right. If this was a U.S. business, it probably would lever up more, and there would be more scope for it to do that. Uh, management, I think, are, are kind of reasonably conservative in that, in that sense. So in terms of capital returns, again, earlier earlier in its life than maybe other better known, larger roll-ups, it's still in that growth phase. I think they're on a mission to build it to a scale and then monetize it through an exit, presumably. And I think that that 500 million in run rate revenues, 100 million in run rate EBITDA, which they're at now, which was their target for next year, um, you know, that seems to be now, uh, you know, I, I, my, my sense is they're at that level now where, um, you know, there's an event of some kind. And, you know, if it's a, if they sell TIC rather than the whole business, they're going to be sitting on a pile of cash. And that provides them with the scope to do a big buyback or special distribution uh, or, or, or something like that, because, you know, they're not going to sit on a huge cash pile like that. And, and um, I mean, it's either that or they buy another similar sized business in GRC. But I mean, I think when you look at the GRC space, they're more likely to be acquired rather than be an acquirer because of just because of the, the relative size. Um, it's the beautiful thing about them. having a, a major shareholder who, as you said, has a habit of making funny money and a CEO who gets paid if the stock price goes up, right? They get a lot of cash flow in. The worst thing in the world for them to do would be to just sit on the balance sheet, right? It needs yeah. to go back to shareholders because if it sits on the balance sheet, guess what? That harms your TSR. It's a drag on your returns. You're not going to get paid it off on that big TSR R thing. So go buy something at GRC. And again, you get paid on the stock price. So any deal you do, 
at least management's going to strongly believe that it's very, very accretive to value or get it all back to shareholder. Let's get a question just on business quality. We've talked about business quality retention here, you know, especially on the TIC side, which is the fire safety and security and water and air hygiene side. My understanding is the roll up, it works not just because you're buying another smaller player and putting it on the platform like that. That is why it works. But uh, these are very like uh, route density, local Modi businesses, right? Where, hey, if you're doing the fire and compliance for one warehouse here, yeah. okay, cool, that's great. But if there are 20 warehouses there and you can get all 20, you can really leverage the fixed costs. And, you know, one inspector or one service technician can kind of do all 20 on one stop, which really leverages the fixed costs. Am I thinking about that right? Or is that just completely off? Yeah, so no, you're right. Uh, so I mean, that's essentially kind of like yeah, cross-selling uh, uh, service, and that's something they 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 kind of highlight or flag as part of the organic growth opportunity. So, you know, it, there's two kind of aspects to the the kind of the the growth uh, prospects of this business. One is just the market growth because of regulation and compliance standards. That's just growing, um, and it's just mandated. So that's kind of a four to five percent growth rate. And then additionally, there's probably a similar level of growth again from the, the, the root density approach or the cross-selling whereby we're doing your fire and your you know your security compliance work uh we should probably do your air you know uh, as well across your entire estate not just you know a particular premises and so um yeah that, that i mean that is a big uh i mean that that is a big kind of um component of of, of kind of how they grow organically i mean a similar i mean Rent to kill and other businesses, service businesses like that, have a similar approach in terms of that root density uh, approach. So it's the same same principle here in terms of um, you know you get the account and then you go out across the estate um, in terms of you know across all the warehouses or all the factories or, or office blocks or whatever it is. And no, I, I just wanted to make sure we hit on that just to, you know, it, it's easy to say, oh, this business is worth 15 times, good returns, good, but it, there is a lot of times the all the time, the business is worth 15 times, not just because, you know, on an Excel sheet, it's got financial characteristics, but there's like an underlying business reason why those financial characteristics look so good. And you know, local route density, anyone who's familiar with waste hauling, anyone who's familiar with uh, like, it's one of the best moats because once you get that local route density here, it's not going to be 100% incremental margins like it would for some of those businesses, but it's very high margin. And if you've got 20 warehouses and the 21st gets built or just a random guy is looking to take one on, you're going to have a much better pricing. It's a really nice mode that's very difficult to end. Uh, I mentioned the capital. I mentioned the investor deck again. I'd encourage anyone who's interested to go look at it. I'm like looking at slide 17. It, it is just such value investor. I call it forum because, you know, slide 17, consistent and resilient history of organic growth. It starts at 5% and by FY23, it's up to 10%. You know, anytime you've got something growing organically in the high single digits, you love that. Consistent EBITDA margin enhancement, all this sort of stuff. Like it's just what you want to see as an investor. Let me ask you another question. I, I, I've talked bullishly. We talked about the bear case, which is the roll up and accounting, cash flow, add back to red flags. If we just kind of put aside the, hey, I don't trust the numbers. I think this blows up spectacularly. It's I never used the F word on here, but it's fraud like is what some people might say. If we put that piece aside, what worries you the most about this business, right? Because you've got great revenue retention, you've got secular trends. I, what worries you the most? Is it most of the revenue is London-based? So you're just kind of worried if London is just a general mess forever? Or sorry, I said London, English-based? Or is there other worries that you have with this business? No, I mean, I think, I don't think that's, I don't think that's an issue. I mean, they've got, I think, something like 50,000 customers across the, the whole business. So it's pretty well diversified across the whole UK market. So I, I mean, I think 
think that's a positive. Um, I think, I mean, the main risks in terms of my particular thesis on this, I mean, the main risk is the catalyst, as in the breakup or the sale event doesn't occur. But I think, as I said earlier, fundamentally, it's a good business. It's resilient. It is, you know, positive investment attributes and it's cheap. So, I mean, I think there's some support and downside protection in that. I think the big risk really is around, um, uh, I suppose, capital allocation, a bad acquisition is one a poorly executed M&A but I mean they've been at this eight years and you know it's hard to see how they would make a really bad acquisition or botch it especially um, they're not trying to buy and their model isn't it's a roll up so they're not trying to buy companies larger than themselves and you know um, it's not like you know buyer buying Monsanto or that kind of stuff where it's just totally a totally different um, uh, you know combination it's it's so I, I think uh, capital allocation is one is is an obvious risk, but then when you look at the track record and their approach, and they have a very very clear defined framework in terms of what types of businesses they buy, how they fish, how they manage them, how they integrate them. So I actually think the probability of that, you know, blowing up the business is is, is pretty low. So then the other one then obviously is is um, you know in terms of the, the the capital stack and how it finances itself. So leverage I don't really see as an issue because. They've shown that they're pretty conservative on that. So how they that just leaves the equity side. And so how they funded acquisitions to date is, I mean, if they're small bolt-ons for 10 or 20 million, that comes out of cash flow and existing internal resources. But for bigger acquisitions, they, you know, time to time, they 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 do equity placings. And that's, I think, about 80% of the capital deployed on acquisitions over the last five years have been through new equity placing. So dilution risk then is obviously the, <clears throat> is obviously the uh you know what 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 kind of you you would think would be a risk there um that that's one but then you look at how again it goes back to the track record they've raised money in the past um i mean the largest placing they did was a couple of years ago for uh, an occupational health business about 130 million share placing uh, which funded pretty much nearly all the whole consideration and that's i mean that was a kind of what, what they kind of refer to as a platform acquisition rather than a bolt-on acquisition it was just larger but i mean that that acquisition is working out really well. Uh, that's in a really and, good growth area or good growth sector. It comes so, back to it comes back to hey, you've got a management team who major shareholder history of making money owns a lot of the stock. His exit is clearly going to be a sale. He clearly wants to sell at some point and realize money. It, I mean, my opinion, but I think that's what his tracker got a CEO who's very share price incentivized. Look, if they're going to issue stock, I don't think they issue stock today at the current price. But you just no. kind of hope like. You know, if it's one of the companies I talked about earlier where the each board member is getting $200,000 per year and they own $4,000 worth of stock, they'd probably issue stock just to grow the business because they don't really care, right? But if you've got a CEO and major shareholders who are very incentivized to get their share price higher, if they're issuing stock, look, people can be wrong, people can make sense, but people can make mistakes, but you have to think they're doing it because they see a path to a higher stock or they, they see a lot of value in the deal. Yeah. No, no, they're, they're not gonna, they're, go ahead, go ahead. Sorry, I was just going to just touch on that point. No, they, I mean, the, the, they're not going to offer stock uh at this price <laughs> level i mean the last time they offered issued stock was at nine ten pounds a share or something like that so i mean that's the level where they they have issued stock in the past and that's to complete strategic you know uh commercially sensible acquisitions so you know i i suspect what we'll see now is that if the share price is languishing where it's at and the market doesn't care about a potential sale or liquidity event uh you're going to see and they've hit that kind of 500 million revenue, 100 million EBITDA kind of threshold. You're probably going to see them run it more for for um, 
you know, for for uh, um, cash flow purposes and just, you know, because if that's what the market wants to see, well, then maybe that's what's going to drive a re-rating in time absent a, a kind of a sale event or, um, you know, uh, some other kind of, uh, you know, transformative acquisition or something. So I think, yeah, I think um, at the current share price, you're not going to see any dilution. Uh, it just wow. wouldn't make sense. And now a quick word from our sponsor. Are traditional expert calls in the investment world becoming obsolete? According to Stream, they are. And you can access primary research easily and efficiently through their platform. With Stream, you'll have the right insights at your fingertips to make the best investment decisions. They offer a vast library of over 26,000 expert transcripts powered by AI search technology. Plus, they provide competitive rates on expert call services, and you can even have an experienced buy-side analyst conduct the calls for you. But that's not all. Stream also provides the ability to engage with experts one-on-one -on -one and get your calls transcribed free of charge, all for 40% less than you would pay for 20 calls in a traditional expert network model. So if you're looking to optimize your research process and increase ROI on investment research spend, Stream has the solution for you. Head over to their website at streamrg.com to learn more. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time. Last question I'm going to ask you, and then we're running long, and I'll let you go. So look, again, people know I had you on the first time. I had you on again. I, I'm an active subscriber. I really enjoy your uh, your subscription service. I also, because of that, I've read all your ideas, and I know like you are a big believer in inflation kind of being sticky or higher than normal. And a lot of your ideas have centered around, I don't want to pitch them all, but they've centered around that idea. You know, we've got, uh, you and I share a, a, a MLP royalty play that gets, you know, a natural gas prices as they go higher. I won't share it, but we've both, we've looked at that pond. You, you've shared a lot of ideas that kind of benefit or take the idea of stickier, higher inflation. Now, this is a good business with great recurring soft, great recurring revenue characteristics. If you believe the numbers, cash flow comes in, you know, these types of businesses tend to do well in any environment. But uh, a lot of your investments have centered on that kind of core thesis. So I just want to ask, like, this is a little bit different. It does speak to your history as like a value investor. It's very private equity-ish, but it's different than a lot of your other things. Like what attracted you? Obviously, there's a catalyst here, but what, how does this kind of fit into your your overall framework? That's a little bit of a different question I did. But when, you're, when your service recommends like eight plays that have higher inflation, higher commodities, that type of stuff invested. And then this one play that is great business, private equity characteristics, catalyst driven, just kind of struck me as interesting. How did it fit into your worldview? Yeah, well, I suppose I don't, I didn't deliberately go out of my way to kind of just focus on energy or commodity business. I mean, the way I, I view the world now, and I'm not a macro analyst, uh, but I think you have to think about kind of the backdrop. And, and my view of the world is that, yeah, I think, you know, it's not going to be 10% inflation, but it's not going to be one and a half percent inflation like it was in the last cycle. I mean, I think realistically, it's probably more three or 4% probably inflation. So that's still a multiple of the old of the old world inflation level. So I think, you know, um, in this cycle, I think what I would call real assets and, that, and within that, I'd include not just kind of energy or commodities or, you know, I even think certain real estate, selected real estate companies and uh, types of assets will do well. But I think real companies are a type of real asset. And that's companies that like the likes of Marlow, that service real businesses uh, in the real economy and provide essential mandated services that, you know, pricing will probably track inflation. Um, and I think, uh, you know, like the last cycle, it was all things tech facilitated by low interest rates and the promise of growth over everything else. I think this cycle is more about what really 
less so about apps and more so about uh you know um real assets and essential essential uh materials and and assets for 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 you know the the economy and and, and society so i think that's how this fits in you know i i hear you on all of that i have a lot of energy exposure on and for me it's not that I have any type of macro views on oil going to 50 or oil going to 200 or something. A lot of it is I just look at it and I say like, okay, oil, let's pick it right. Oil is at 95 as you and I speak right now, right? I can find a lot of commodity companies where I look at the stock price. I'm like, hey, the stock price kind of implies that oil is at 70 currently, right? And obviously there's a curve and everything, but I think the stock price implies oil prices and energy prices 30% below the curve, right? And I feel like I'm getting a margin of safety where if energy prices stay here, they're going to make so much money, almost nothing else matters. And if energy prices go down, then they turned out to be fairly valued. So the curve was wrong, but the stock price was right, but I'm not going to lose money. And it feels like investors are either, they've just been burnt by energy so much, they don't want to invest in it, or they're applying massive, massive corporate governance, management incentive, capital allocation discounts. And you know, I hear all that, but it's just... It's really big. It's really big. You know, like oil, as you and I speak over the past couple months, it's gone from kind of Brent high 70s to mid 90s. And if you look at any energy prices, it is implying absolutely none of that. Or, you know, look at Tidewater, which I did. One of my favorite podcasts was I had Tidewater CEO on and that stock's done incredibly. But if you look at where day rates are and where energy prices are, it's like, hey, the stock, it's done really well, but it's it is somewhat levered. And like the day rates have gone up more than stock. Like it, it just feels like you're getting a really big margin of safety there. And as you said, like so much investment, it's really easy to go underwrite the next Facebook killer. Not a lot of people have been thrown into, hey, Tidewater, offshore vessels, let's go build some new ones. Like no one has. So if prices kind of stay here, like you could imagine a lot of services or energy could kind of go a little bit parabolic. So I don't know, it just feels interesting risk reward to me. Yeah, but, no, and I think on that as well, I mean, it also happens that a lot of these, what I again would call real asset companies are, are cheap. And, you know, the, the multiples are low. And, you know, 12 months ago, people were saying, oh, well, the multiples are low because they're over earning and they're, you know, bodies are going to roll over and everything's going to collapse. And that was the thinking for a couple of months, despite kind of what we knew about the energy and commodity landscape, particularly post, you know, Ukraine and, and, and what's going on there in terms of how that's disrupted, you know, the supply of everything, really. Um, and so I think when you think about things like onshoring, and, uh, you know, disrupted supply, uh, resource nationalism, um, you know, demand is still growing, urbanization is increasing, uh, you know, and, you know, we, we supposedly we were supposed to be at the age of peak oil and yet oil demand has gone up this year, exceeded 2019 peak. So, you know, I, I think I think it's reasonable to assume that, um, you know, that that kind of oil and other commodities and materials demand is not really going to collapse for the many times so i don't think oil and i don't who, who knows really i mean oil could do and oil could go negative again who knows but i think over you know a, a medium term reasonable time frame it's unlikely that uh demand is going to create or, or prices for these materials or commodities are going to collapse i mean you know something like like in the fertilizer space is really interesting as well at the moment in terms of what's happening there i mean that that kind of related to uh kind of energy and i think i just think the world has changed um and i think that has implications that uh you know people assume and this year has actually been a good example of this people kind of assume that oh well, it's just going to go back now to the previous cycle before covid and tech is where it is and you know you look at what 
the winning trade this year as you plot the XLE and uh and well, our, the, I think the winning trade reversed. this year was YOLO long Tesla options, maybe, but I don't know. No, I, I definitely hear all that. You know, the one thing I do get in debates because I hear a lot of people saying energy policy is crazy and I, I get it. Like I'd love to have more nuclear. I think we should have started nuclear 30 years ago. You know, I, I'd love to see some more drilling. I, I understand environmental concerns, but you know, oil is at 90. I think people would, a lot of people in the world really benefit from cheaper oil today, uh, all that stuff. But you know, I just, the one thing with inflation and the higher commodities, like if you're paying commodities, I just, against human and that that has generally been a bad bet like i remember i i remember in 2014 when oil was 100 i i had friends very smart friends who managed tons of money who were like we've underwritten the entire world oil supply oil can never go below 70 again and we've underwritten all of our investments to to be in the money as long as oil's over 60 these are the best investments we'll ever make 18 months later oil's in the 40s you know like it, it's mm. just I never want to bet against human genuine. Anyway, uh, I, let me give you last thoughts. You can comment there. You comment, Marlo, anything you want to talk about before I, I kind of need to wrap this up and get some other stuff done as well. Yeah, no, I think, you know, I just, thanks for having me on the podcast. I really enjoy the discussion as, as I, as I have the previous ones. And yeah, no, I think Marlo is a, a really interesting situation. I think there's going to be more news ahead uh, on it. And I think, uh, um, yeah, and no, I think that it's just one of a number of really interesting uh, names in the UK market at the moment. UK equities Lastly, are really neglected. UK, so. I think UK is one of the most interesting markets right now because it's just so shelled out and the multiples and some of these, like, again, I think if Marlo, if it was all US revenue trading in the US, I, it would trade 50% higher, right? It would trade for a 50% higher multiple, which would actually be higher stock price. Like, I think the UK is so interesting right now. It's so shelled out. People are so desperate over there. But that will be a conversation for another time. Kind of, it is, I am distraught that it took so long to have you on for the second time but uk is super interesting you're doing great work we'll have to have you on for the third time in the very near future i'll include a link to the marlow right up in the show notes and uh looking forward to the third time that's great yeah look forward to that and uh, we'll speak again soon thanks andrew thanks man a quick disclaimer nothing on this podcast should be considered investment advice guests or the hosts may have positions in any of the stocks mentioned during this podcast please do your own work and consult a financial advisor thanks